Welcome to the first special edition of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. International attention has focused in the last several weeks on the Spanish region of Catalonia, where a vote on independence from Spain was held on October 1st. The Spanish Constitutional Court ruled the vote illegal, and national police injured as many as 800 while attempting to stop people from voting. Nevertheless, the Catalan government maintains that about 90% of people who did vote did so in favor of independence. Over the past few days, events have become even more confusing. Fortunately, I have two experts on Catalan history here today to help us understand the situation and the history behind it, James Stout and Maria Carreras. James is an adjunct professor of world history at San Diego Mesa College, and Maria is a senior graduate student at UC San Diego. James and Maria, I want to start by welcoming you both to the program. Thank you for Thanks. having us, Foster. My pleasure. So James, I thought um, we could start with you, and I was just wondering if you could help us out just summarizing these events of the last few days in, in Catalonia and where this situation stands right now. Sure. Um, so if we start on the 1st of October, right, which had been coming for a long time, the referendum seems to have returned about a 90% yes, a yes, Catalonia should be an independent state in the form of a republic. And since then, there has been some indecision. And on Tuesday of this week, um, this is a subject, this is nine days afterwards, um, the Catalan Parliament passed an independence motion, but then delayed implementing it, which is a confusing situation, which has led to the president of Spain, Rajoy, giving an ultimatum to Catalonia that by next Monday, I believe, they should clarify where they stand and what they're going to do. And we don't know where they stand and we don't know what they're going to do. So we see that in the last few days, we have this movement for independence in Catalonia that's kind of reached this impasse with, with the Spanish government, and we'll see how this plays out um, over the next weeks and months. But I wanted in this podcast to take a step back and try and understand the, the history, the historical context that is broadly led to this conflict right now. And uh, so I thought, if, if we stay with you for a minute, James, if we could go back kind of all the way to the beginning, because I know that a lot of Catalanists will say that they kind of trace the, the origins of their national identity um, as far back as the Middle Ages. So I was wondering if you could just kind of summarize that um, perspective and also tell us um, how you feel about that. I'm not a big fan of this like primordial nationalism, this idea that the the nation existed before we were aware that the nation existed and we woke up to it, so our awareness of it. But certainly we can look at a notion of Catalonia or a, an area which is similar to Catalonia, which spoke a language which is it's Catalan, or Languedoc, which is one of this fa language family of which Catalan is one. Um, and the language spoken in Valencia is very similar. And the language spoken uh, up in what's called northern Catalonia, which we would see as the southern French provinces, which are also Catalan, is very similar. And the language spoken in the Balearic Islands is very similar. So the Principality of Catalonia, I guess, was part of the Crown of Aragon, which then obviously is united, as I'm sure your listeners will know, with Castile, and this later becomes the Kingdom of Spain. And throughout the sort of the Thirty Years' War, the Franco-Spanish War, we see that in times when Spain is in trouble, Catalonia tends to revolt against the Spanish monarchy. And they tend to assert their own fueros, which are like independent legal rights, mm -hmm. um, which it's worth noting may be slightly more liberal with respect to their sort of property legislation than 
other laws at the time that they weren't really proto-democratic, and I don't I don't buy the argument that they have some distinct lineage of democracy um, passing back through hundreds of years. Uh, and then we get to, for instance, the Reapers' War, which is where Catalonia's national anthem comes from. Again, when there's disputed secession to the Spanish throne, the Catalans will support a different candidate mm-hmm. to uh, the rest of Spain, and. There's, there's this consistent desire for Catalonia to assert its, its independence or its difference throughout Spanish history, I guess. But we don't really get to what one could call a nation or nationalism um, until we arrive at modernity. And I believe that nations are a consequence of modernity. And um, so if we see a nation as like an imagined community, people really start to imagine this community as, as distinct from Spain and whole unto itself around the time of the Spanish crisis in 1898. And it's important to realize that the first Catalan nationalist parties don't seek to leave Spain so much as to lead Spain mm-hmm. uh, and to impose what they see as a Catalan sensibility on what they see as a Spanish disaster. And this is, this is where Catalan nationalism comes from. It's accompanied by a romantic renaissance, um, these poetry, a sort of, um, they're called floral games in English, um, sort of a, a poetry competition, which really sees a revival in the use of the Catalan language, Catalan cultural things like dances and choral societies coming back. And this is happening as Catalonia is rapidly industrializing and the rest of Spain is not. So their economies and their cultures are rapidly diverging, and maybe those two things are not independent, right? Um, right. And as the Catalan economy grows and the Catalan textile industry specifically grows, uh, the Catalan bourgeoisie and the Catalan nobility start sort of thinking back to this time when Catalan was spoken by everyone because there's a huge influx of migrants from the rest of Spain. And when people lived in the fields and had this happy romantic idyll, right? And this romantic idyll is expressed in Catalan. And it's constructed against Spanishness and against this, first of all, against this migration from the rest of Spain. So, Maria, if we can turn to you, James emphasized the role of the the late nineteenth century and specifically the moment of the crisis of eighteen ninety eight as a, a point where Catalan national identity really condenses. So, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more. What was it about that moment that really saw the the, the rise of Catalan nationalism? Sure, I think what's pivotal about that moment in that year is when Spain loses its empire. It loses um, Cuba, it loses the Philippines, and it loses Puerto Rico. So what's happening is that you have a lot of Catalan businesses in, in a lot of these colonies, particularly in Cuba. So a lot of people argue and make the claim that empire was what was kind of keeping Catalonia and the Spanish state at bay with one another. So once empire collapsed, then that fractured the relationship between the two. So as you have the fracturing relationship between the both of them, this is where James actually made the, um, the statement about the emergence of different parties emerging. They were kind of picking up and creating a model of what Spain could look like, but with Catalonia leading it along the way.
Welcome back to the program. I thought in this second segment we could talk more specifically about the development of this Catalanist movement in the 20th century and bring in a little bit of the research that you two are doing as well. So to start out, the Second Republic was a really key moment for the Catalanist movement. Uh, I was wondering, James, could you talk a little bit about what happened um, during the Second Republic and how did that develop the uh, the Catalanist movement? Yeah, for sure. So what we had in Catalonia in the Second Republic, um, in contrast to Spain, was a consistency of agenda and political sort of rule by one party, the Catalan Republican left, what we call them in English. And that's abbreviated to ERC, right? The ERC is the government of Catalonia for the entirety of the Second Republic. Now, at the very beginning of the Second Republic, an independent Catalonia is actually proclaimed. Um, and this is very quickly walked back and it becomes an autonomous ca Catalonia within Spain. And that autonomous Catalonia has significant leeway to legislate as it wishes. And it continues on this, this left Republican agenda, which benefits the working classes and brings people, regardless of where they're born, into this Catalan national project. And when the government in Madrid, as I'm sure your listeners know, um, we have these three biennia that we divide the Second Republic into. And the second one is it's often referred to as the Bienio Negro, the, the black biennium. This is when the government in Madrid moves to the right and the government in Catalonia remains the same, largely aligned with the previous government in Madrid. And conflict immediately begins. And in October of 1934, we have this conflict becomes open and becomes violent. We again have another proclamation of um, the independent Catalan state, which is repressed by Madrid. And I think October of 1934 is the closest analogy to what we're seeing right now. There's probably no coincidence that this, this vote happened in October. And what we see after that is kind of this strengthening of the notion of if Catalonia can't have what it wants within Spain, then it'll get what it wants outside of Spain, especially during the Second Republic when, I, when ideas of democracy and autonomy and determination are very valid and very current within that climate of the 1930s, right? And Catalonia had become a very different polity. For instance, communism didn't have much sway in Catalonia. The salient union groups were anarcho-syndicalist or socialist. But because Catalonia has this consistent... ERC majority in the Catalan parliament, they're able to get a lot done for the working class. And I think that's where my, my research comes in a little bit. I look specifically at sport and specifically at the use of, of popular sport, i.e. not elite sport that people go and watch, but sport that people participate in, to bring groups together behind this Catalan nation. And so that's getting people of different classes, getting people who were born in different places, people who work in different industries, to come together on the field of play and take part in mass gymnastics, to swim together, to run together, um, to build human towers together, um, or play football together. In doing so, to build this popular Catalan identity around sport. And sport fit very well with Catalan ideas that they were modern, so they could use these supposedly scientific, which, as it turns out, were not scientific, rigorous methods of training, Catalonia had long been trying to assert itself culturally. We spoke about that cultural renaissance. And one aspect of that was a construction of stadia. And cities technically apply for Olympiads. Nations and states do not. 
um, although we perceive them as being awarded to states, not cities. They're actually awarded to cities. Barcelona had been putting forth bids for the Olympics for a long time, and Barcelona was passed over for Berlin at a time when Berlin was a part of the Weimar Republic. Uh, Berlin, by the time it held the Games in 1936, was not part of the Weimar Republic, as we know. And Catalonia, Barcelona specifically, um, steps forth. I should have said earlier that this ERC government is not dissimilar in many ways from a popular front. It's a broad coalition of left Republican parties that agree on Catalan nationalism and that agree that they are very strongly opposed to fascism and to the, the Spanish right, which I don't think we should characterize as fascist. And so when they see this fascist games, the Catalans already have these stadia, which they've constructed as kind of, they very explicitly compare them to cathedrals. They're trying to bring people to Catalonia with this idea that Catalonia is this modern place where we don't go to cathedrals because we're not national Catholic necessarily like the Spanish, although there were Catholic Catalan groups. Um, but they also have these, these modern stadia where people can go and, and enjoy sport instead of worship or a different kind of worship, maybe. And so Catalonia steps up in 1936 to hold what's called the Popular Olympiad. It's often called the Workers' Olympics, but um, I could go, I could bore you for hours on why it wasn't a Workers' Olympics. What's important is that they do this under the auspices of the Popular Front. And so, although funding comes from Barcelona, funding also comes from Paris, from Leon Blum's government, and from Madrid, and from the United Kingdom. And it's a good example, I think, of the Catalan willingness and adeptness for using sport to bring people together who were not previously, who didn't see themselves as one. And I looked at how they use sport to build this Catalan nation across classes, and I finished up by looking about how they tried to use sport to build an international identity um, across different nations. Unfortunately, the day that the Olympics were due to begin was also the day that the Spanish Civil War did begin, um, and so the Olympiad never happened. But nonetheless, I think it represents the high point of this, this Second Republic and their attempt to use culture in Catalonia to bring people together. Do you think that using sport and other cultural activities during the Second Republic, that that did help to coalesce this Catalan identity? Yeah, I do. Um, so if we buy Anderson's narrative of the nation, it comes together through print capitalism, right? Now, that is compelling in many cases, but it's difficult necessarily to use print capitalism for a nation which has a national language when most of the working class don't speak that language, right? So we have to use another means of constructing the nation. Now, sport is a language that we all understand. And there's something that doesn't need to be communicated through words when we all stand on the terraces together or we build a giant pyramid together or we sweat together. And I think that using sport, I looked a lot at cycle racing, partly because it's something I enjoy greatly, partly because as a peripatetic sport, it's a really interesting way of constructing national narratives because you can literally beat the bounds of your nation around the outside and tell people that they lie within it and draw them into a narrative which starts in the capital and comes to the provinces and returns to the capital. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really powerful way of bringing together a nation that isn't necessarily linguistically cohesive and that's experienced massive immigration because it doesn't require education, it doesn't require language, it doesn't require access to high culture. And it allows people to access this, this thing that they can all do and that they can all do together. And there's a very explicit narrative of popular sport um, in Catalonia. And there is government and civil society support. 
This is the same momentum that gets behind the Hitler Youth, that gets behind all these movements of the 1930s, that the body of the nation is becoming weak and we must strengthen the body of the nation. But unlike the German or Italian, the sort of the Hitler Youth, the, um, the fascist youth in Italy, which was about order and discipline in strengthening the body, this was about participation and coming together to strengthen the body together to many of these groups like the Sokol, which I'm very interested in, had education elements. They would teach people to read and to write and about Catalan history. And then they'd all go and do mass aerobics, lifts and weights, play some football, build a pyramid. Yeah, I think it plays a really important role in physically and emotionally bringing a nation together in a way that you can't when your national language isn't a language that everyone speaks. So we see the Second Republic as kind of this high watermark for Catalanism, where the, the region is actually able to obtain um, autonomy. So I want to ask you, Maria, about kind of what happens after that during the Civil War and then when the Franco regime was able to take power, what was the fate of the, of the Catalan movement during that time? Right, so primarily my strength lies within um, the Franco regime and into the transition to the modern era. So when you have the arrival of Franco, he asserts to establish his authority and his power over the Spanish state. The object is to create a homogenized, unitary state around a, what we could say, an anti-multicultural Spanish nationalism. So in doing that, it abolished all forms of regional language and regional cultures and expressions. This included, of course, um, Catalonia, Galicia, and the Basque Country, of course. So what it exactly was it eliminating? The public use and print. So at that point, you can no longer have anything printed in, in Catalan. Eventually, what ends up happening is a lot of these companies are abroad. A lot of them are in France. So you do have the language still circulating and being printed and then imported, but just not necessarily in Spain. You can no longer speak the language. A lot of street signs, names of people, and different things. The Catalan version was abolished and it had to be replaced with that of Spanish. An interesting case, of course, is with FC Barcelona. It was no longer um, Football Club Barcelona, but Club de Fútbol de Barcelona. And these were done for many other teams as well. So you have the oppression of a culture more broadly. And within that culture comes the language, the symbols, the expressions. So how successful would you say the, um, the Franco regime was in trying to stamp out the, uh, the Catalan language and, and, and the identity that comes with it? Right, so I think kind of this kind of heads into my um, research which focuses on the history of childhood um, during the Franco regime and into the transition. And although I look at the way that regions, both um, Catalonia and Andalusia, use civil society and how non-state elites targeted populations, it always does so in opposition to the center, in opposition to Madrid. So what the state is doing is tries to, it tries to create a unified education system. In part, that does not become as successful as they would imagine. I think the idea would be we create a unified education system, we disseminate it out throughout Spain, all the kids eventually in the future will become these perfect Spanish citizens that we're looking for. Well, there's various problems with that. One, there is no agreement between what Spanish history looks like, what the Spanish education system should be. Some vow for a more conservative one, which putting the church at the center of it and kind of dictating what happens. 
And there's the more progressive kind of education. And what progressive merely meant at this time, it was just kind of using theories and methodologies and European ideas. And this is something that becomes central with Catalonia and the way that it kind of links itself to um, Europe and it's happening today and as we will probably speak about in a second. So there's tensions within that. There's also the idea that education was not universal at this time period. There were children that were being left out, whether it be because they were poor or they had sufficient means and funds to go into private schools. And in Catalonia, the private schools actually become central in, and I would, what I would say, in fostering this reemergence of Catalan fervor after the transition. Because what's happening is that a lot of um, wealthy and upper middle class elites, what they're doing is actually sending their kids to private schools. A lot of these private schools were, for example, the French schools. Within the French schools, they were actually getting, they were exposed to other ideas. They were exposed to ideas, a lot of left ideas, a lot of ideas that were just being circulated around and um, throughout Europe and something that within the Spanish government would have been inexistent. So in this sense, I would say if we're, we're discussing citizens, creating citizens, citizenship, which is something that then is later discussed now as to who is Catalan, what does it mean to be Catalan, we're on the spectrum of nationalism does lie. The aspect of children is very much essential because through the children, they're molding what they want to see into the future. Um, as we could see, and as I would argue, the Spanish state wasn't as successful in molding the kind of children that they wanted. But then since they, were, they had limited reach in civil society, this is where, this is where Catalonia kind of came in, whether it be through alternative forms of education or recreational activities, as James previously spoke about during the Second Republic. You still see this continuously happening. Okay, great. So we'll take another short break. When we come back, we'll discuss how this history uh, fed into the current situation in Catalonia. So in this third section, I want to take the historical context that we've been talking about up to the situation as it stands at present in Catalonia. Uh, so to start out, I want to ask you, Maria, as the Franco regime was trying to suppress Catalan identity, as we've been talking about, do you think that in a certain sense, it actually strengthened that identity in certain ways? I would say it was both. To an extent, it's, it strengthened the identity, as I always like to say, as a natural reaction. Anybody by human nature, when something of you or yours is kind of being taken away and repressed, you're going to react and want to recover it by nature. 
And as I also mentioned earlier, there's still the, the printing of books around. There's still people who are being catalanized, for lack of a better terms, by learning Catalan through their parents, engaging in different activities. So to an extent, it did strengthen it. On the other hand, there was also a weakening of it. And I say this because as we get into the democratic era, um, when you transition to the democracy, you now have the opportunities to have schools that can teach Catalan. But what's happening is that, okay, now you can teach Catalan, now you could have a more Catalan education system curriculum, but who's going to teach it? There were some people who were able to do it, but not in the mass quantities as people would have expected. Um, on the other hand, you're also having the emergence of a generation where you're almost developing a dual identity at that point. You are Catalan, but at the same time, you're Spanish too. Well, this kind of stems from the fact that then you can be Catalan at that point and you can be Spanish. So there is that change. And what's happening is it kind of trickles down into the education system. So in sum, if you're going to ask, does this strengthen it or weaken it? I would say it's a combination of both. It just depends where you look at it and within what context. So James, if we turn to you, I want to ask you a bit more about what Maria mentioned. After Franco died in 1975, we have this transition to democracy and Spain gets a constitution in 1978 that creates this idea of autonomous communities. So how does Catalonia fit into this new system that they developed? So the system itself, like we I think we've like the hegemonic way of referring to it. It's a transition to democracy, but I'm not sure that I buy the transition to democracy language. I think I prefer the phrase uh, post-dictatorship because there's significant impunity for people who committed crimes under the Franco regime because the Valle de los Caídos, which is this, this monument to, to Francoism and to Franco, still exists, right? There, there is no Nuremberg trial in Spain. And, and Spain doesn't really um, deal with its civil war past, right, until a lot later, until the second decade of 21st century, really. And where Catalonia emerges from this is the Constitution acknowledges the right to autonomy of the nationalities and regions which form Spain, but only after it asserts the individual, uh, indivisible, I should say, unity of the Spanish nation. It, it at once sort of asserts and undermines the, the Catalan autonomy. And later, so there's Catalan Statute of Autonomy, which is passed in 1979. And both of these, it's important to note, are passed by referendum, right? Um, referendum, which both gain like high 80s to 90% support in Catalonia. Um, so there's this established, there's this process of making these changes through consultative or binding referenda, um, which is what's being drawn on today, right? But this second statute of autonomy really kind of at that time, I think, gives enough autonomy to Catalonia. And Maria and I have both spoken about this. So Catalanism and what is sufficient autonomy changes over time with Catalan. There's never this sort of Catalan panacea which has existed through the existence of Catalan nationalism in politics. But at that time, that seems to be sufficient autonomy. Um, and Catalonia gains over time autonomy in policing, the Morsos, who are important. And we see in the 1st of October, we see how important they are, right, and how they're perceived very differently. Catalonia gains autonomy in education, as Maria spoke about, which is absolutely key. And other aspects of self-rule, of sort of government spending, are done from Barcelona, not from Madrid. And I think as we begin the 1980s, that is enough. Um, certainly it doesn't hurt that there's sort of a 
economic revival going on, that, that people are doing well, and that seems to be enough for Catalonia. And it isn't until the start of the 21st century and the, the Great Recession that, that that stops being enough and Catalonia wants more. So, Maria, could you tell us a little bit about what was it um, about that moment in really the last years of the, the first decade of the, of the 21st century where for a lot of Catalans, it, it was no longer enough. The, the system um, that had been created in the, the late 70s and, and early 80s. What do you think caused that transition in the way a lot of Catalans saw their place in, saw their in Spain? Place in yeah. Okay, so I think as James had mentioned, as we, we've had extensive conversations about this, is the development of Catalan nationalism. What does it mean at a particular period in time? It was very obvious that in that post-Franco era, you kind of work with little building blocks. What happens, um, approximately two, three decades go by. You have a completely new generation that's emerging. It seems like the only thing that Catalanists can agree on is, is autonomy and very little else. I and mean, we see that right now, right? We see very broad, certainly for anyone listening in the United States, more right. broad than you can conceive of existing coalition right. behind Catalan nationalism, but it doesn't agree on anything else. Right, and I think that's one of the key elements here. You have also the rise of a, of a mass audience. You still have all these migrants coming, not only from throughout Spain, but throughout the world, who are finding their place in Catalonia as well. So what is it that it doesn't make it enough? Well, the businessmen don't see it as enough. They're kind of seen as being sh um, short-drifted. Um, the politics and the politicians who are still trying to find their way even as we've seen at the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century where they kind of want their place in the Spanish government. You kind of see that re-emerging as well. So it depends again, as I mentioned, enough for who and how much do they want. And I think mm -hmm. that that's one of the conflicts that we're seeing today with the whole referendum as well. That kind of takes the story up to the present day. And I'm wondering, is, is there anything in particular in what you've studied of, of Catalonia's past that you see influencing uh, the events that are happening today in particular? The one thing that I think, that it's not just in Catalonia's past, but in Spain's past is, and um, we've spoken about this, is that Spain seems doomed to repeat it, its, its past. Um, and part of that is because it won't confront it. Um, so Spain has just, now they have a, a, a law of historical memory. But for, as I said, like, I, I, don't see the, I don't see the constitution as representative of a definitive break with Francoism. And so like, these, these issues still persist and, and they just fester. And then, like, for instance, what we're seeing now is a consequence of the elections in 2003 in Catalonia, right? We're seeing Catalonia passing a new autonomy <coughs> statute, that autonomy statute being edited by the people in Madrid to such an extent that the people who originally passed the statute didn't want it to be passed, it being passed anyway, and then it being challenged in the court for four years until we get one series of referenda in 2010, thereabouts, um, the sort of piecemeal referenda in different areas, mm -hmm. um, and then where we are now. but. Where we are now draws strongly on where we were in, and obviously I'm going to see that it draws on the, on the Second Republic because the Second Republic is where I've spent like intellectually the last 10 years of my life. But of course they'll go back to the, the last time that Catalonia was independent, right? We still have the ERC, we have the same political party existing. We have the same symbols 
And also this, like, this Catalonia, which, as we've said, has always been flexible, um, but the high watermark, as you referred to it, is the Second Republic. So that's where it goes when it, when it wants to refer to sort of greatest autonomy and great, getting greater autonomy. And we even see, like, the, um, you know, the, in, in terms of the naming of monuments, etc., like going back to presidents from the Second Republic. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly, like, part of it's a sort of invention of tradition or reimagining of history. But what is occurring now, I don't think, is that distinct from the Second Republic in that the Catalans all agree that they want to be, or not all agree, of course, um, it's 41% by some polls. What the Catalanist parties can agree on is Catalanism and opposition to a right-wing government in Madrid. And that is exactly the same as 1934. And what Madrid seems to be able to agree on is that it is a fantastic distraction from all the crises and corruption scandals, just as we saw in the Strapello affair in the Second Republic, right? A fantastic way of distracting from that is to go and stamp on some Catalan throats, and, and they're doing that again. Right. Even if it ultimately didn't work out very well for right, the, the first time. public. <laughs> yeah. and it's funny because James speaks of like the highlight of it. It's like, well, what does it mean to be Catalan? When was it that you really have the last um, autonomous Catalan nation? But the way that I kind of view it and have thought about it in Spain's historical past is I've placed it with the end of the empire and with the Franco regime. So I'm looking at it from the more like the brutal and dark moments of time where you have, yes, the emergence of um, Catalan political parties, but then you also have the state intervening. You have an increase of violence. In the early 20th century, it was against anarchists at the time and any other left-leaning political ideology. The Franco regime, of course, we cannot escape that with the idea of just oppression altogether, with the inability to vote, with the National Guard coming in, very obvious between the two. And I think one of the things that has stood out to me at least more recently is that tension and relationship between the National Guard and the Mossos Escuadra. Because the Mossos Escuadra are the ones who have the ability to patrol in Catalonia. But in any event, the Spanish state always says that in an event of a crisis, the National Guard has the ability to come in and overpower and overstep the authority of the Mossos and any other um, policing authority. And what's happening with the referendum, what I was particularly drawn to was the fact that the Mossos Escuadra were still protecting the civilians as it's to be their role in this case against the, the National Guard. For me, it's a particularly interesting tension or, that I saw. Yeah, and, and since I study um, the po- policing forces yes. in Spain as well, it, it reminded me of this attitude that, that the Spanish government has had for at least since the, the restoration period in the late 19th century of whenever there's any kind of political challenge, the, the, kind of, the automatic response is to send in the police, the police and to try yeah. and stamp it out. I was just thinking about that policing thing, like the automatic response of the people is to start calling them murderers immediately, the Guardia Civil turn up, right? There's right. this assumption that like they're here now, we know how this goes, right? They will right. kill us. And then the specific use of like rubber bullets, that just seems to be a very, like, like you say, a complete, I don't know if it's ignorant or deliberately pugnacious and an attempt to undermine the autonomy of Catalan policing. But it, 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 was, they, it wasn't like they waited until they were being charged at by hordes of people with Molotov cocktail. They turned up 
like ready to rumble with rubber bullets in a way that they must have known was illegal. And that just, it's, I don't know if it's sort of an arrogance or a, a, a sort of a feeling of superiority to the Mossos and to the, to the methods of policing that exist in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. I believe they also used water cannon, which of course has, has you know, it, it's symbolically tied to the Franco regime. Uh, they, they certainly have used that before in independence protests. Um, so like these things are symbolic as well as you know, barbaric. But yeah, the policing and the the firefighters, right? Seeing right. Catalan That's firefighters fighting with with Spanish policemen was I don't know. None of us expected to wake up to that <laughs> on the first of October. Well, I I think that you you have a combination of the government putting the police in a difficult situation where mm-hmm. they say you have to go into this region where you're not normally supposed to be anyway, at least not to that extent, and stop people from vo- voting. Mm-hmm. And and then also these kind of culture of policing where you're going to use very physical methods to, to, to try and get people um, to do that. And, and that's a culture that has certainly changed a lot since the, the Franco regime, but I think what we saw there was it maybe hasn't changed completely. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> um, so a last question, do you have any predictions for the future about how you think this whole confrontation between the, the Spanish state and um, this independence movement in uh, Catalonia is going to play out? I, I think I was off the mark when I, I, I didn't expect this to develop as quickly as it had done. I feel that if Catalonia doesn't strike quickly, then the momentum will be lost, and maybe it already has been lost. Um, so I think that we'll know by this time next week. It, it largely depends, I think, on the willingness of the EU to support an independent Catalonia at this point, because an independent Catalonia outside of the EU is, is functionless, and it can't be the Catalonia that it is economically. But if I had to make a prediction, I maybe think that, that we won't see Catalonia declaring an independent state in the form of a republic as much as as I would like to see that given the way that this has been handled by Madrid. But it seems that there, that there is momentum in Madrid behind discussing this further and discussing greater autonomy for Catalonia. I can't see there ever being a situation where the, the PP, Partido Popular, right, the right-wing party in Madrid, will tolerate... Catalonia leaving Spain without doing even more violence than they already have. Mm-hmm. And I hope that doesn't happen. And everything seemed to have spiraled very rapidly, so I wouldn't put any sort of scenario off the table. Right, I think I would have to agree with James on this one as well, too. And I think what it kind of boils down to is that relationship between those the people and the politicians in Catalonia and the politicians of the Spanish state, really coming to a consensus and figuring that out. You're, we're in a moment of time where it's obviously completely and utterly fractured. Again, drawing parallels to the early 20th century, there was no consensus to allow Catalonia to somehow exercise a form of autonomy. The big factor, as James mentioned, is the EU. Like James said, Catalonia outside of the EU would be functional less. So it's really one of those things that's up in the air, but I don't see it happening anytime soon mm-hmm. either. I guess a difference from what I was looking at in the 1930s is that there is a more significant asymmetry in force than there has ever been, right? So Catalonia in the Second Republic and before that in, in, the, in the Primo de Rivera time, there was this era, this era of violence, street violence, right, where, where unions were used to killing each other and to killing factory workers. And people, 
they used to say that they didn't bother cementing down the cobblestones in Barcelona because someone would be pulling them up and making a barricade again in two weeks. And people were used to violence. People were equipped to do violence in a way that wasn't dissimilar to the way that the entities of the state were equipped to do violence. Now they're not. Like there's, there is no physical violence method through which Catalonia can win its independence. Right. There's just not that, that option. That right. So if Catalonia does say yes and Spain does say no, then we reach an impasse which only ends one way. That's not the same as, as and really any other previous incidents. You know, it's not the same as the Reapers' War. You can't get a scythe now. Right, and I think, like I said, it boils down to, it's like, okay, Catalonia says yes, the state says no. It's obvious where it's going to necessarily lean towards. It's like I have no other option at that point. And particularly in the international context yeah. of, the, of the European Union, it's, it seems hard to picture a scenario where the other states in the European Union, some of which are worried about their own mm-hmm. cohesiveness, mm-hmm. would kind of give their approval to, right. to that. Yeah. With that said, it's upsetting that the other states in the European Union can find it in their hearts to condemn firing rubber bullets into the faces of old ladies, right. because mm-hmm. that's, that's not consistent with a democratic Europe. The concept of an illegal vote is one we should think very hard about, right, Nick? Yes, this vote may be unconstitutional, but we should consider whether the Constitution, which claims to be democratic and is put in crisis by elected officials causing a vote, is really a very good Constitution to be judging anything by. Again, like Foster, I think you mentioned with the restoration, that crisis of the restoration and like the rigging of votes, you could just even take it back what, to the late 19th century. Yeah, there's a deep, a deep distrust of democracy exactly. embodied in, in right. this, this post-dictatorship right. Constitution. And the idea of an illegal vote and of using police to confiscate ballot boxes isn't one that's consistent with with many formulations or sort of perceptions of democracy. It's not what you want to be doing to assert your democratic legitimacy. Yeah, it's interesting for me, having taught Spanish history, and one of the themes I focused on was this difficulty, you know, Spain has had various liberal regimes in different forms for about 200 years now, but it's been very difficult for them to establish that legitimacy and stability. And even when I taught this a couple of years ago, um, I could say that Spain has finally been able to establish a regime where where they do have that legitimacy and stability. And, and now it seems I won't be able to teach that anymore. <laughs> no, unfortunately, you cannot teach that anymore, Foster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, sort of incomplete, yeah. Uh, unconsolidated democracy, maybe. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the program. I think that this is really important that, that you guys are doing this kind of historical research that uh, is providing this kind of context for the, all the developments that are going on right now in, uh, in Catalonia. So Thanks thank for having you. us. Thank you. Thank you for My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes.